The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. We've got a pile of questions set for you. And uh, I'm sure we're going to get a little bit of a theme of... uh, um, some annuity questions since we did a call out for annuity questions, this being annuity awareness month. Um, as always, we'll start out with some social security questions and then dive into some, uh, uh random retirement planning questions, if you will. And, uh, yeah, that's probably the best description of what's going on today. I've got Jim joining me from the Southern studio. Southern Command Center, otherwise known as my living room, or what I affectionately call the dead animal room because it's got my elk and and deer mounts in it. But um, you sound a little congested. A little bit. I think I've been having a little little bit of allergy problems with all the growing things around here, with all this rain. Mm. Yes, that's what happens. Colorado is usually dry, folks. We've been having a very wet spring, and uh, things are actually growing and green, which is bizarre. And uh, the only thing I worry about now is that they dry out over the summer, which is very typical. And we have a bad fire season in the fall. Yeah, maybe. But Yeah, my lawn is perfectly green and I haven't even turned on my sprinkler system yet, which is crazy for this area of Colorado in June. (laughs) Exactly. I usually turn mine on in May. Same Mm -hmm. thing at the office. And uh, it's it's nuts, folks, for us to get right now. Granted, rain for Colorado means in the afternoon a thunderstorm comes through, dumps a lot of rain in uh, 20 minutes to an hour, and then moves on. We're not talking all-day events. Well, the, we've, we've been, had some, though. That's the crazy part. We had part. some of those, yeah. yeah. But uh, I had, again, that typical 30-minute shower, maybe 20 minutes last night. But it, it's rare for us to be getting it this regularly. I'm enjoying it because next year it'll probably be bone dry and I'll be complaining about my garden. So uh, my garden's enjoying it. I will say that. Not so much the the um, thick, heavy, wet soil. Uh, it's hard to plant in. But my peas this year, uh, they're, they're relishing this. They mm. the cool, wet weather. It's like pea heaven. Um, so I anticipate getting uh, quite a bit of peas in the next couple of weeks. I usually get them by the end of June. So uh, we'll see. Nice. 
I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, I know you. You love munching on my peas. Remember when I think I was on my way to Ohio for the first time, and I had no time to harvest, and I just filled like a couple of trash bags with the whole plant and everything, and just dropped them off to you. Did you guys ever? Yeah. Did you chuck them all away, or did you actually dig through them? Oh no, we rummaged through there and cleaned them up and ate peas for a couple of days. Yeah, we're talking the big brown trash bags, folks. I just jam-packed, full, filled them with the, the whole pea plant. I just pulled them out of the ground because I was going to be gone the entire month of July. And anybody who's a gardener knows, peas and heat, that's like oil and water. They hate it. So if I didn't do that, they would have went bad. You probably had some that had already probably gotten too uh, ripe anyways yeah. in there and were probably too hard and crunchy. But um, so what happens if you don't harvest them at that right time. Okay, anyways, there's enough of gardening. Uh, this is, we're going to continue with the theme of National Annuity Awareness Month. Still patiently waiting for my card as well, but something tells me Chris isn't going to send me one. And um, I'll probably have something so- hand delivered. Perfect, perfect. You could just drive it and leave it in my driveway. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I did that a couple days ago. You didn't get it? No, you must have left those, the keys in it and someone darn, took it. Those darn thieves. <laughs> darn. <laughs> but um, we're going to lead with social security questions like we always do, even though it's National Annuity Awareness Month, because social security at its core is essentially an annuity, the verb annuity, the action, the actual income payments for the rest of your life. And keep that in mind when you guys think about annuities, talk about annuities. There's annuity, the noun which is the insurance product that simply holds your money that you deposited into it. Notice I said insurance product. It's not an investment. It's an insurance product. Even if you have a variable annuity whose return is going to vary based on the return of the investment it's in, as opposed to a fixed annuity, which are the ones that we uh, tend to prefer at our firm, that pays a stated interest rate. Either of those are not investments in my eyes. Even a variable annuity is not, it's regulated as an investment and an insurance product. To sell a variable annuity to someone, you need both licenses. You have to be insurance licensed and securities licensed. So it's kind of a hybrid, but at its core, it's still an insurance product. Same thing with fixed annuities. All annuities will have two phases, the deferral phase and a payout phase. Social Security is essentially the same in the sense there is a deferral phase. Unlike a traditional annuity, you can't get your money out of Social Security during the deferral phase, if you will, which is the period of time you're working and deferring the money that you and your employer are putting in. And then, of course, there is the payout phase when social security has the action the verb annuitization applied to it and your money that you have put in over the years is now slowly doled out to you over the rest of your life and if you live long enough and receive all your money back that you and your employer put into social security social security will continue to pay you or your survivor until you die and by yeah. survivor, I mean a married person. 
Was it something I missed on that? Well, no, I just want to add one. You know, it, it, it seems to the recipient like a deferral period, and it acts like a deferral. It's not technically being deferred. Right, right. That, so that, it's there's yeah. no account that you're building up at Social Security that you're deferring into and then receiving payments from that account. Uh, it's a, a dollar transfer system. It has been from day one. So that current claimants, t- current recipients of their Social Security annuity are being funded. Those dollars are coming from current payers into the system. That's how it works. That, that's so, so, but to the recipient, it feels much like a deferral period of an annuity where you're putting money in, you and your employer, then you get a payout period. So um, on one side, it does feel like that, but I just wanted to clarify because a lot of people think it actually works like a deferral account. There's like some account there that's yours and I want my money and all this kind of stuff. That's, that's just not how it's set up. No, not at all. And I didn't mean to imply that. And if I did, I apologize. It, Chris is right. It feels like a deferral period. But at its core, a pension, Social Security are both annuities in the sense they pay a lifetime stream of guaranteed income. Every insurance product you buy that goes by the name annuity will offer you a lifetime stream of guaranteed income. Even a MIGA, which we talk about a lot on the show and we had been using quite regularly. Um, we still do now. We're just not as excited about it because interest rates have come down a little bit on MIGAs compared to where they were. And we act, actually, I'll probably try mentioning that when we get to the annuity questions because we got a question that, that kind of ties into that. Okay. But a MIGA, when you buy, say, a three-year, four-year, five-year MIGA, you might think, oh, I'm going to keep this annuity, multi-year guaranteed annuity, for three years, four years, five years, whatever the term is. The insurance company is going to pay me a fixed, compounded, guaranteed rate of interest for that deferral period. Then I'm going to close the annuity and walk away and use the money for whatever purpose I was saving it for. That's how most people use MIGAs, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's how we use them. But believe it or not, you can call up the insurance company and say, annuitize this MIGA, and they will turn it into a lifetime stream of guaranteed income as disclosed to you in the policy. Now, I wouldn't recommend that. I would get a quote, but I wouldn't necessarily just annuitize it with them because with a MIGA, as with any annuity, when you buy it, the annuitization tables and the interest rate and whatever guarantees they're going to offer are locked in to the contract. So you always would want to compare it with what a new fancy dancy annuity would offer you and compare the two of them. Don't just go with whatever the annuity company is going to offer you compare it to someone, uh, some other firm as well for what brand new annuities are offering, especially if interest rates went up. Now, if interest rates went down during the deferral period, and for some reason you want to turn your MIGA into an income stream, you may want to ask that insurance company what they would give you. And it might, not all the time, but it might be more than what a fancy-dancy new income annuity would pay you because the fancy-dancy new income annuity company would be using lower interest rates. doesn't always work out that way, but it's worth checking to see. So I just wanted to point that out. Even if you buy a MIGA at its core, it will pay you a lifetime stream of guaranteed income. 
That's what sets an annuity apart from any other insurance product you can buy. What's the insurance you are buying with a MIGA, with an annuity in general, with a pension, or with Social Security? What are you protecting yourself from? What do you think the insurance is, Chris? What do you mean, what do I think it is? I'm just passing it on to you. That was my handout. That was my baton. <laughs> You're supposed to say longevity risk, living too long. Yeah, right. That's what well, I what wanted to say. what you against. Yeah, you, you said what is the insur- what, what the insurance is, it, so I thought you meant what is, the, what, what is the name of the policy or something like that. No, so, no, no. no, no it's it. the, mm-hmm. Literally, the insurance. Why do you think the government who create – I don't want to say they created an annuity. They created rules – that allowed the insurance industry to, for the first time ever, create a very specific annuity. And the government actually named the annuity themselves. It's Chris's favorite annuity. What is it, Chris? That's a QLAC, Qualified Longevity Annuity Contract. QLACs. I jokingly say they're Chris's favorite. I once did a series of shows when they first came out on QLACs, and it drove Chris nuts that... One person could talk forever about a QLAC. I'd still be talking today about them if he let me. But notice the government, folks, put an L, longevity. They wanted to have the industry create a product that would ensure people, if they lived a long time, by providing them a stream of income they cannot outlive. When you buy an annuity... You may be deferring your money like a QLAC and have no intention of annuitizing it. But if you buy an annuity specifically for income, it is because you have made a conscious decision to ensure your life in the sense, not like life insurance, but the opposite. Not from dying too soon, which is what life insurance protects you from, but living too long. And to provide a lifetime stream of income that no matter what happens to the economy, to the markets, to interest rates, you will be paid a stated amount of income for as long as you live. That's how I want you to view annuities. They are a tool that provides longevity protection. Unfortunately, they have been bastardized by the industry. They have been oversold, overpromised. They have been made far more complex than they should be. The many, many, many of them contain extremely high opaque fees that you cannot figure out. They pay an outrageous commission to a lot of brokers who push them. So there's a lot of bad in the industry. And Chris and I are not defending annuities. We're trying to teach you about them so you can say to the graph and to the crap-ass annuities out there, get the heck away from me. I don't want anything to do with you. I want to give you the knowledge to be able to say that and then to look at your own situation and not necessarily you deciding as a 50, 55, 60-year-old if you are going to buy a lifetime stream of income. I'm trying to give you the knowledge that you will need So you can make sure you put enough money aside. So the older you, the 70, 75, 80, 85 year old you, it's their decision, not yours at 50, 55, 60. It's their decision if they want to buy an annuity. Don't take that from them. But give them the knowledge that they are going to need to make an informed decision 
and make sure the money that they will need to either take annual withdrawals from because they choose, not you, they chose not to annuitize, or if they do want to annuitize, that there's sufficient assets left that wasn't spent on fun for them to annuitize. That's what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to teach you how to think of annuities in your retirement. I'm not encouraging you to run out and buy one. I want you to learn about them because it's your knowledge as the younger you that is going to be the knowledge that the older you will rely on to make an informed decision on whether or not they want to buy guaranteed income. You at 60 may not want guaranteed income. You at 78 may want it and want it desperately. It's their decision, not yours. It's your responsibility to learn how annuities work. Okay. One little correction before you dive into the Social Security. When when Jim mentioned if you have no uh, intent, even if you have no intention of of annuitizing it, uh, like with a QLAC, he meant to say with a MIGA at that time. So I just wanted to make sure if people were confused by that statement. If you're getting a QLAC, you have every intention of annuitizing it at some point. You still there? Oh, he thought I was going longer, so he paused himself. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, MIGAs, generally people don't have any intention of annuitizing those. The point of those, the strength of those, really, uh, its common purpose is for a set period of time when you're going to earn the guaranteed rate that the insurance company is promising you. A QLAC has a deferral period, and then income is turned on at some point, and the whole purpose of buying it is to get that income later in life. So... Just wanted to clarify that one statement. And I wanted to clarify, I did not mean to mute myself. I actually, when you took over, when you rudely (laughs) took control of the conversation, (laughs) I clicked my little mouse pad thing here. I don't know what you call it, the little thing on the laptop that you put your finger on. Mm -hmm, The touchpad. Mm -hmm. Touchpad, okay. Uh, And apparently I touched too hard on the touchpad and it muted my microphone and I didn't know. And when you were yapping on about me, I'm still talking to you like you could hear me and Finally, I went and looked and I thought, oh, God, I'm muted. So anyways, that's what happened. All <laughs> no right. Problem. We made let's, it through. <laughs> we made it through. We did. We did that well. All right. Let's get into Social Security questions, folks, like we always do. Uh, no hint from this listener, so I'll just say his state is Texas. Okay. Uh, this came in from our website, the blog that you host, helpwithmysocialsecurity.com. It came in quite a while ago. Uh, when did it come in? April 24th. So that's not too long ago. No, that's not ago. too long ago. Okay. How is the family maximum benefit affected by a retiree taking Social Security at 62 who has a 47-year-old spouse and a 5-year-old child? Do you subtract the FRA um do you want me to? Do you want to define what FRA is? Or do you want me to just read through this? Uh, why don't you read through it, and then we'll clean up okay. anything that needs to be cleaned up. Do you subtract the FRA or the early retirement amount from the family maximum? If subtracting the FRA, then the yearly benefit is fourteen thousand less for my situation, well below my family maximum benefit. I will be receiving less. 
because I will be taking Social Security at 62. My FRA is 3,500. The maximum family benefit is 5,750. At 62, because I'm claiming early, I will get 2,300. Do you need me to repeat those numbers? Are you all set on them? I think I'm jotting those down here. So his PIA, primary insurance amount, which is what he's referring to there when he says FRA, full retirement age benefit, is referred to officially as your primary insurance amount, your PIA, he mentioned is $3,500. Maximum family benefit, which I'll define or explain to people in a moment, he said, you said it was fifty-seven fifty, And at age 62, he's calculated that he would get about 2300 for Correct. a benefit if he claimed early. Okay. Also, if I keep working and earn too much from 62 to 67, will Social Security take Excuse me. Will Social Security take away my child's benefits in addition to mine and my spouse's? Mm. If so, will they return it starting at my age 67? Thanks. There's a lot going on in this. There's a lot of this. questions so let's, there. So let's, let's unwrap this whole thing. So I, I already clarified what he meant by FRA, his full retirement age benefit. He is talking about claiming at 62, which he has a full retirement age of 67, um, which is how I got that as the last statement. It's when he said, if so, do they return it all starting at 67? I'll address that returning it all statement later, uh, just a few moments. But uh, by claiming at 62, he's, his benefit will be 30% lower than if he claimed it at 67. So there's that, but he's got a younger spouse, appears to be, excuse me, 15 years younger. So a spouse that is caring for a child of theirs, who's only five. Um, so what this opens up is the potential for a spousal benefit for the spouse, which basic spousal benefits real quickly. People know that if uh, you're trying to claim a spousal benefit, your spouse you're claiming off of has to have claimed themselves. So he has to claim in order to unlock the door for a spousal benefit for his spouse. But you might be saying, well, well, she's only 47 years old. Yes, but she's caring for a child under the age of 16 of his. If that is the case, then they waive the age limit on claiming the spousal benefit. So a spousal benefit will become eligible at that time. And the child benefits, the child benefit, uh, uh, to the, uh, based off of his record, is going to be available to that child until they turn 18 or turn 19 if still going to high school. Each of those benefits are 50% of his PIA, his full, uh, full retirement age benefit. However, there is such a thing as a family maximum. In other words, there's a maximum that they will ever pay on a single claimant or number holder's record. So for him, he's calculated that out. I'm not going to question these because I don't have all the data to do the calculation, and we're kind of doing this on the fly. So I'll trust that his family maximum quote of 5750 is correct. Essentially, the family maximum states that the total amount of benefits paid on your record can be no larger than 150 to about 182% based on a formula of your benefit. So your benefit's going to be 100 of that. So then they're going to pay anywhere from 50 to 82% on top of that benefit to 
auxiliary beneficiaries, which is what your spouse and your kids are referred to as. So this, he's, his question is, are they going to do this limitation factor on the family maximum based on uh, inclusion of his PIA number, his $3,500 PIA, or that $2,300 uh, age 62 benefit, which seems a little too low based on a $3,500 FRA. But again, I'm not going to question his numbers. We'll just go with them since he gave them to us. And the answer, unfortunately, is yes. The first thing that comes off the family maximum, so of that $5,750, they are going to remove the $3,500 of his PIA, even though he's only going to be paid $2,300. That's just the way the that's just the way the calculation works. So they're going to take off the $3,500, leaving $2,250. The $2,250 that's left within the family maximum will be shared among all remaining auxiliary beneficiaries. So they would normally each be, without limitation, they would normally each be uh, eligible to receive $1,750, right? 50% of $3,500 is $1,750. Thus, 3500 between the two of them. But that would exceed the family maximum between the three of them easily. So what they say is we're going to limit it and we're going to make it fair. We're going to you know, apply this limitation to the auxiliary beneficiaries equally. So they're going to make them split, not 3,500. They're going to make them split 2,250. So they'll each get the, the wife and the child 1,125 based on his calculations here. So that's the first answer to one of his questions. You know, which do they use when they actually calculate the family maximum and how it's going to affect the child and uh, spouse's benefits? It is the PIA always. And in this case, it's, it's kind of feels like it's harmful, but there's also times when it's good news. So let's say he waited and claimed after his full retirement age and earned delayed retirement credits that made his benefit bigger they still only use his PIA in the family maximum calculation. So it can hurt or it can help this rule, but it is the rule. So you just have to play by it. Now he then threw in, I'm going to be still working, right? He's going to have earnings. So he might be subject to the earnings test. Why? Because he's claiming at 62. After he reaches his full retirement age of 67, he can work and earn as much as he wants. And the earning test isn't an issue. But between 62 and 67, if he's claiming that whole time, they're going to take a look at the earnings test, which right now, in the years leading up to his full retirement age, uh, this number is inflation adjusted, but you can earn about a little over $20,000 a year. And after that, they're going to reduce your benefit $1 for every $2 over that earnings amount. And his question is, is that going to also affect my spouse and child's benefit? And the answer is yes. Earnings test will flow downhill, but will not flow side to side. And what I mean by that is any benefits paid to you, the one who's earning and being affected by the earnings test, any earnings on your record below you also get affected by the earnings test. Your spouse, however, their earnings don't affect, let's say your spouse had claimed and was earning, their earnings don't flow over to your side, to your benefit. It only flows down through your record. So yes, and now the good news is his this total benefit that he's going to receive um, looks to me like he's going to, would have to make, you know, quite a bit of money 
to completely wipe out the the benefits, but it's but it's going to start to eat into it as soon as he hits that roughly twenty thousand. And I don't have the twenty twenty three number in front of me. It's a little over twenty grand um, of earnings that he can have. For every two dollars over that, they're going to reduce benefits to the family by a dollar. And so it'll probably take another hundred thousand dollars or so of of uh, earnings above that limit to start to wipe out to be you know really eating into the majority of that benefit but it's it's phased right it's it's one dollar for every two dollars of earnings so yes that will be a situation if you continue to work and earn over the earnings test limit then he states so finally to the last thing if so you said do do they return it at 67 or something like that was the wording um what he's referring to there is any benefits that you lose due to the earnings test when you get to full retirement age they will recalculate your benefit at that point giving you credit for the earnings they withheld and the way they give you credit is they recalculate your benefit as if you hadn't claimed as early as you really did so they don't give it back to you saying a make-up lump sum payment or anything it effectively goes into your benefit for the rest of your life and so you would eventually get it back if you live long enough. But that's how they do it. The strange quirk in the rules is that auxiliary benefits that are lost during the, due to the earnings test are never made whole. They're just lost. Down the river, gone forever. So any benefits that would have been paid to your spouse or your child during that time that you are 62 to 67 and maybe being affected by the earnings test... Any benefits reduced to them are vapor. You know, they're gone forever. The benefits to your payment that were reduced due to the earnings test will go into that recalculation formula at your full retirement age. So there was a big bag of interesting stuff going on in that particular email. Um, stuff that we've talked about maybe uh, individually, occasionally, but not all kind of wrapped up into one. You know, th- these are the types of issues and rules that you need to be aware of if you're in some of these kind of uh, less common situations. And by less common, having a spouse that's 15 years younger. So there's, you know, a long period of time when they might be, you might be on Social Security and they're not even yet at claiming age. And maybe you have a very young child, even though you're claiming Social Security at 62, you may very well have a very young child that has uh, eligibility to claim a benefit as well. And then you throw in the family maximum that affects things, and then you're maybe still earning, and then the decision of when you claim becomes extraordinarily complicated. This is one where you'd want to consult with someone that uh, you know can really look at your overall situation, not just the Social Security question. So not just what I walked you through. I'm not saying through my answer that, yes, you should run out and claim at 62. Uh, I don't know. This is really part of the overall situation you have to look at and see how it all folds together. And there might make, you know, might make perfect sense that you claim at 62, but it might make sense better at 64, 65, 67, 70, who knows? Uh, without looking at your whole situation, it's hard to uh, stay to state that for sure. So Jim, this is your call, your official call to join us again. I know that that, that kind of had to be lengthy because there was a lot going on in that particular email. 
There was. There was a lot going on in there. So I'm only going to limit this to one social security question because that one was a long one and you covered multiple things. So I can jump into some of these annuity questions. But wow, that was a a good one. Maybe we'll turn that answer into a blog post. That was a a lot going on there. Okay. So let's get to some annuity questions here, folks. Um, I'm going to start with one that picks up what something that I mentioned briefly about MIGAS. Uh, and this one, at first blush, isn't an annuity question at all. But I want to make mention of something because I talked about it and I said I'll talk about this briefly. You'll see what I mean in a second. Uh, it did come in this year, this year, uh, this week. No hint. I guess I could give you a personal hint, Chris. He lives in a state that I might move to. You got a 50-50 chance here of getting it. Kentucky? Ohio. Oh. (laughs) For those who don't know, yours truly is considering, hasn't quite committed, but is strongly considering moving out of the fine state of Colorado because it's so dry. If, if, If it did what it's doing this year, I wouldn't be moving. Um... But I'm thinking of going back east to be closer to family, closer to Florida, where I hope to have a condo in the winter, and to be in a place that actually rains. And I'm thinking the Ohio River Valley, somewhere outside of Cincinnati. It's just areas that I'm exploring. And uh, Chris knows that, and I talk about it on the podcast every now and then. So he knew I was thinking of living on either the Kentucky side of the river or the Ohio side of the river. And he, he, he got it wrong. Uh, He is from Ohio. He wrote this, Chris. He says, I never hear you mention brokered CDs, but they are a great short-term option. I currently own nine to spread the risk at an average coupon of 5.1 and an average term of five months. And then he goes into the types of CDs he has. And he wants to know why we don't talk about brokered CDs. I thought we had in the past a few times mentioned brokered CDs that we use them uh, in positioning. Uh, and uh, we mentioned I have it a few against, times, yeah. Yeah. I didn't get deeply into them. But how do these relate to MIGAS? Notice, folks, he said he's using brokered CDs. But if you picked up on it, he's got them very short-termed. Brokered CDs, because they are CDs, are sold by a bank, but they are offered to you on a broker's exchange. You can get them from any major brokerage. Schwab has them. TD Ameritrade has them. I would wager all you Vanguardians, they should have them, I would assume, but I don't want to speak for them. But any brokerage house usually offers these CDs that are issued by banks. Now, you might be saying, why do banks sell them on a brokered exchange? It's cheap distribution for the bank. You might also say, why do brokers offer them? Because they get a yield spread on them. There is no cost, generally speaking, when we use these for our clients on TD Ameritrade, there's no outward cost. And if you could see me, but you can't, because this is a podcast, not a video show, I'm holding my hands up. Literally, I'm not lying, holding them up right now, making those air quotes. Because there is a cost. What happens is the bank will give TD or whatever broker you're working with a bunch of CDs. It's 
not all individual CDs. It's probably just one big one. TD can break that into separate dollar amounts because you can buy them in very, very small dollar amounts. And they list them on their exchange. And let's say they list them at an interest rate of 5.12. I'm just making that up. Chances are the bank is paying 5.18 or something like that, maybe 5.2. TD takes a cut. It's called the yield spread. So there is a cost, and the cost is what if TD didn't exist and the bank was willing to start their own brokerage exchange and pick up all costs and do this as a nonprofit? So I'm being a little facetious there, but there is a cost to them. Even though you may not think there's a cost because you just bought it, TD's getting a little bit of a yield spread. I don't know how much. I would imagine it's not a lot because the, the scalability of these is so great. They can make a fairly good profit on a very small markup, but they are getting a little bit of money. The reason I'm mentioning these MIGAs, multi-year guaranteed annuities, key off of 10-year bonds, the 10-year yield for the most part. Brokered CDs, especially the short-term ones, are going to key off of short-term rates. Longer-term ones will key off of a slightly longer-term rates. Right now, short-term brokered CDs are paying more than long-term brokered CDs, and they're paying much more than long-term MIGAs, because short-term yields have risen and long-term yields have dropped. Now, that's generally speaking since October, uh, not as of the date of this. Over the last few days and weeks, long-term yields have been reacting more towards the, the knuckleheads in Washington threatening to default on debt. But since October, long-term yields have come down. Yields on MIGAs have come down. But brokered CDs with a three-month, six-month, nine-month, 12-month term, their yields have risen or stayed steady at about five, a little bit more than 5%. So I just wanted to make mention of that. When we work with people and when you are doing this on your own, not an income annuity, if you are looking to time an expense in the future, and you don't want to invest those dollars, you don't want to expose them to market risk for one reason or another, especially if you need the money in a couple of years, no one with, with any d degree of knowledge on investments is going to say, oh, go out and buy stocks. You need that money in two years? Great. No, no one's going to say that. So what we try to do is we're not married to MIGAs. We're not married to brokered CDs. We just use whichever ones happen to be yielding the most. But one thing to keep in mind with a brokered CD, they do not compound your interest like a traditional bank CD will and like a MIGA will. You buy a MIGA with a 5% yield that you want to hold for three years, that will compound 5%, meaning after the first year, you get your 5% interest credit. And in the second year, the 5% will be on your initial deposit plus the interest you earn. That's compounding. A brokered CD doesn't do that, and it doesn't do that for one simple reason. It pays its income out as it's earned. They will pay out monthly, quarterly, depends on the brokered CD you buy. So there is reinvestment risk with a brokered CD. 
we at the firm tend to use brokered CDs for time periods of 24 months or less, preferably 12 months or less because it limits our reinvestment risk or the client's reinvestment risk. But if a client buys a two-year, and in the past, some people have bought three MI, uh, excuse me, brokered CDs, we generally will reinvest the interest quarterly into an exchange-traded fund, which I will not name, but you can find your own. We use an exchange-traded fund that is uh, simply buys one to three-month treasury bills. It forms a treasury bill ladder of three months. They buy one month, two months, three months, and when the three-month one matures, it it becomes when the one month one matures, excuse me, they take that money and buy a new three month treasury bill. So it's a very short treasury bill ladder that's easy to do. And its yield right now is a little over 4%. So if you're buying a one year brokerage CD that pays interest quarterly, you have to reinvest that either into a three month or six month or, or nine month brokerage CD or into a uh, ETF like we use. So do keep in mind that there'll be reinvestment risk with a brokered CD because you don't have, and it makes sense, folks, if you think about it, the bank isn't selling you the CD, TD Ameritrade is. In big blocks, the bank sells this CD to TD. TD's the one, or whatever broker you're using, breaks it up themselves. But you don't own a, you own one You do own a CD at the bank, technically speaking, and it is fully FDIC insured, but you don't have a separate account at the bank. TD keeps the separate account. So they're just going to pay the interest out. They're not going to reinvest it. It doesn't work that way. Okay. I just kind of... We haven't mentioned them a couple times before, but not not an awful lot. You know, much of the years of this show were spent during the low historically low interest rate environment period here in the United States. So we didn't talk a whole lot about CDs and uh, MIGAs even. Um, and then as interest rates started coming up, people got more interested in them. People started using them a lot more, become a more common topic on the show. So that's why if you're a long, long time listener, why in the past we haven't talked a lot about these because the, the interest rates were so pitiful that uh, people weren't real excited about them. So, yeah, we have, it's good that we got that up. And I'm glad you, I don't think we've talked about the simple interest feature, I'll call it, <laughs> characteristic of these broker-sold uh, CDs. That may not be obvious to people. Um, so right, they're, they're, they're convenient. A bit different. And don't mm-hmm. let, that, yeah, don't let yeah. that sway you. It doesn't sway us because of the convenience. And even this gentleman put that they are a great short term. He's, he's not acknowledging, and he, he has a term of five months, so he's recognizing that. It's just if you go out and buy a two, three, four, five-year brokerage CD, you're not going to get that compounding like you would with a three, four, five-year MIGA. MIGA's key off of 10-year notes, that's 10-year uh, bonds, and uh, brokerage CDs, depending on which one you buy, are generally keying off of shorter-term rates. That's why they fluctuate. And another thing I didn't talk about, because I don't want to turn this into a brokered CD discussion, but you can sell a brokered CD at any time. And they work just like a bond. If interest rates go up during the period of time you're holding it and you don't want to hold it to maturity, when you will get all your money back, and for some bizarre reason you want to sell it, you can. You can go right back to the brokerage and tell TD to sell it. 
only problem or whatever broker you're using, if interest rates went up, you will get less money for it than what you put in. Conversely, if interest rates go down while you're holding your brokered CD and for some reason, again, you sell it, you might get more than what you put in. So brokered CDs are called brokered because, yes, you buy them from a broker, but you can also sell them through the broker. I mean, that's what a broker exists for, right? To buy and sell things. We don't particularly use them that way. And if a client felt they might need the money during the term, I'm not going to put them in it. I'll put them in an ETF like I described to you, a one to three month laddered T-bill ETF that gives them a higher yield than cash, but is completely liquid as opposed to putting them in a brokered CD where you now have market value adjustment risk depending on what interest rates do. So I would not buy these in an effort to try to game the system or treat them like a bond and trying to buy and sell based on interest rates. You should buy them for what they're intended for, a short-term FDIC-insured and protected investment that yields more than cash. Okay. Yeah. Here comes a question uh, on annuities. Hey, Jim and Chris, state hint. This state has the lowest, highest elevation of all 50 states. You should get this. If you don't, I'm personally going to drive to your house and smack you upside down. I'm pretty sure that's Florida. Florida, yes. Yep, because it's like just a few hundred feet. He claims 345 feet. Yeah, that sounds about right. I've heard that before. So right. the, 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 when you climb to the top of the highest peak in Florida, you're 345 feet above sea level. <laughs> it is a flat state. That's why I started jolking uh, when I was down there. And to this day, I'm trying to keep jolking, even though my back prevents me from doing as much as I want. Although it is getting better slowly, folks. I would say it's, it's a lot better, but it's not gone. I'm so happy. But anyways, I'm not going to go there. But yes, Florida is very flat. Uh, one of these days, I am going to summit Mount Celery uh, in Sarasota, Florida. Someone sent me the link to that. It is a whopping 70 feet above sea level. Mm. Um, I don't know if I can do it in they one day. They call it Mount Celery? Mount Celery. I might have to you know, bring some camping gear. Will you be able to even see it? The mount? You... Yeah, well, it's 70 feet above sea level. That thing's huge. That's fine. I'm pretty sure the top know. of my street is 70 feet above where I am right now. <laughs> well, there's, you, you could practice summiting Mount Celery right from your street. And you can, you can fly down to Florida with me next February. And together, we'll put little go cams on our heads. We'll put little helmets on with a okay. GoPro or whatever they're called. And we'll film ourselves summoning Mount Celery. Well, let's all just admit, there's lots of things to go to enjoy in Florida. Mountain climbing isn't really one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you want to do Mount Salary. Okay. I have a question for Nudie Awareness Month. Once we turn everything on, we will have multiple streams of secure income. Social Security and a joint and survivor pension. Obviously, Social Security has a COLA component. Our pensions have a minimal and another has no COLA. Is there an annuity product? And I'll let you answer this, Chris, when I finish. Is there an annuity product that could be used to establish a fixed, quote unquote, cost of a living adjustment for the income streams that don't have them? I want it to also be joint and survivor. Is this possible? Let me give you an example. 
if monthly pension payments is seven thousand, then I want to. He wants seven thousand. I want seven thousand dollars a month, and I want it to increase five percent a year, fully guaranteed. I would also like it to begin the second year after I buy it, and I want it to go up five percent a year for the rest of my life. Now I kind of took out the math. He gave a lot of math work, but that's essentially what he wants. Chris, can you help this person? Do these white elephant annuities exist? Well, I think the part you left out, because I got nervous where he was headed with this, because it sounds to me like he's wanting something that will inflate effectively give him a cash flow that inflation adjusts his current pension. So adding a little bit on top of that uh, to have an effective 5% increase in his $7,000 pension payment. And that's probably where he was doing all that convoluted math. So that will be hard to answer mathematically on an audio-only podcast. So if that's where he was going, um, we'd have to address that separately maybe. But the simpler answer is... Yes, there are absolutely annuity products that provide a guaranteed annual increase, inflation rate. Um, we usually don't call them a cost of living adjustment because it's not, it's not affected by the cost of living. It's not tied to something like CPI. They are a contractually stated increase every year in the benefit. Could he find one that has the right increase in benefit to accomplish exactly what he's looking for? Possibly. There are straightforward, um, we like plain vanilla SPIAs, single premium immediate annuities. If what you're looking for is the most guaranteed dollars coming back to you every month, given the dollars you give them, because there's no fancy features, it's just a straightforward income stream. And there are SPIAs available in the marketplace right now with, uh, I almost said the wrong word, uh, inflation adjustments contractually promised by the insurance company anywhere from 0% up to 10%. There's only one that I'm aware of that offers 10%, but there are a handful that offer as high as six and a half or so, and quite a few that offer five. He mentioned five. So what he'd have to do is figure out exactly what his growing income needs are and the way we do it in our practice is we look at the, the needs. Our, our needs for s secure income are driven by the size of a client's minimum dignity floor expenses. So we look at how does their current income, like Social Security, and he mentioned pensions, pensions keep up with their projected increases of their minimum dignity floor over time. And if there's a shortage there, we can actually look at the data, look at over time how that shortage changes and it's that rate at which the the shortage grows that becomes the inflation rate we need to look for on an on a um, inflation adjusted annuity. So he can use whatever methodology he wants, but he's probably going to be limited. If he wants a flat out guaranteed inflation rate, it's going to have to be ten or below for a straightforward SPIA. There are other annuities that we are less excited about that have income benefits with them that can provide future increases 
but they're generally not guaranteed at a stated rate. That's the beauty of a, a SPIA. Everything is upfront, not, no question. There's not a, you could potentially get this or that. It's right there in the contract. You're going to get what you get as promised with the inflation rate that you chose built into it. And all these are available with joint and survivor um, uh, benefits included. So, Okay, you are correct. That's what he was trying to do. I miss... Mm-hmm. You, you understood the email better than I did, and I was the one with it in front of me reading it. I thought he wanted to start $7,000 a month and have it go up 5% every year. He actually wants an annuity that will pay him income every year that would equal what a COLA of 5% right. on and, his And that's not really going to be available pension. because right, early on— no, it's going to be a tiny amount, right? 5% of 7,000. So he'd want an annuity in the first year that pays $350 a month, but then goes up. But then the next year more than doubles, right? Because uh, it wants to go up 5% again. Now the next year he wants it to be 700 plus 5% of 350. Yeah. Right. So what he wants to do doesn't exist. There's no annuity that you can say, I right. want 350 this year and then this much that year and this much that year and yeah. this much that year. They'll give you a stated dollar amount up front and then they will guarantee to mm-hmm. increase that dollar amount by a stated percentage between 1 and 10 depending on the insurance company you work with. But you can't say I want to start with $350 and by year 10 I want it to be this much. There's none that I know of that are going to do something like that. Mm-hmm. So I don't think he's going to be able to create exactly what it is he wants. No, and, and this is kind of a classic case where he's they're interested in an annuity that has an inflation rate that doesn't exist. So when we face those circumstances, essentially what we have to do is kind of play a, a little game of starting it bigger than what you want, realizing that later it won't be as big as you need, and then setting up a process where the extra, you know, the bigger part of the annuity that he just made, maybe doesn't need it immediately, uh, gets, you know, reinvested somewhere, held somewhere to make up for the fact that later on. Now, this it's a little messy going that direction, and I'm not saying that's the only way to address his particular circumstance, but that's kind of the approach we've used before when we, we had to face, when we kind of wanted a magical annuity that did a certain thing for a certain person, but they, it didn't exist. You just kind of got to work with the tools that are available, right? And maybe you can construct something or maybe uh, another way that we, he could kind of simulate this is laddering annuity income, right? He could start it at a certain amount and they would go for a while and then he'd get his inflation adjustment by an additional annuity purchase, at some point, which would require reserving money to do so, so that you're sure it was there when you wanted to buy the annuity. So there's, um, well, just a couple ideas. Okay. Let's go back to annuity questions. Remember last week, we answered a question for someone, and he wrote back to me, and he thanked me for it. He was going to inherit an $800,000 non-qualified annuity from his mom. Mm -hmm. Uh, He said she put in about $400,000, and it's worth now $800,000. He wanted to know what his options were. And we answered, go back and listen to that question. He wrote back to me, and he says, hey, thanks for the answer. Um, I'm going to keep doing my research. I think I'm more attracted to the non-qualified stretch. 
So I want to talk to him and to all of you about the non-qualified stretch because I purposefully never mentioned it in my answer last week. So what is he talking about? What the heck am I talking about? We, again, are talking a non-qualified annuity, meaning an annuity not held inside an IRA or other tax-qualified account like a 401k. 401ks will be holding annuities. They're going to become a lot more popular because of Secure 1 and especially Secure 2. It's probably not going to impact anyone listening to this if you are under the age of, uh, excuse me, over the age of 50. But if you are under the age of 40, and 40, you're kind of in a gray area in your 40s, you might want to consider some of the annuity options that are going to be offered in 401ks in the not too distant future. The federal government, in conjunction, I'll admit, with the insurance industry who stands to make money off of this, again, have acknowledged that living too long is an issue and people are terrible with managing their money, especially as they age. And the simplicity of guaranteed income is important and companies are not offering pensions. So let people with a defined contribution plan, which is what a 401k is, get some of the benefits of a defined benefit plan, which is a pension or a lifetime stream of income by allowing them to invest in annuities. The government has finally put in place under ERISA some of the protections that employers wanted if they offered an annuity inside a 401k. I'll talk about this in greater length later. But a non-qualified annuity is an annuity not held in a 401k or an IRA. Because if you hold an annuity in those accounts, the distribution options when you inherit them are governed pretty much by Secure 1 and Secure 2 now. They're governed by the rules that apply to IRAs and 401ks. A non-qualified annuity is an annuity that is not held in them. They are governed by the IRC code, Internal Revenue Code, on what happens. And the IRC is fairly explicit. If you inherit a non-qualified annuity and you are not the spouse... Spouses have special rules called spousal continuation. You can step into the shoes of the deceased spouse, treat the annuity as your own, and continue it. And then when you die and leave it to, say, a child, then the special rules I'm about to describe will apply. He's inheriting it from his mom. So he is a non-spousal beneficiary. I said there are two options, annuitize within one year or the five-year rule. So let me dig a little deeper now since he opened up a little can of worms that can allow me to go down another rabbit hole. I chose not to go down this. Now I am, and I'm excited. First, on that annuitize within one year, and I've got to give a shout out, uh, not to uh, me, I'm going to give a shout out to uh, Michael Kitsis, and I'm actually literally Googling right now, and John Olson. John Olson is kind of like the monger of Berkshire Hathaway. (laughs) Everyone's heard of, oh God, what the hell's his name? Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway and not Munger. Everyone's heard of Michael Kitsis. Even I think uh, Van Guardians have heard of Michael Kitsis. Chris, you've heard of Michael Kitsis. I've met Michael Kitsis. 
Have you ever heard of John Olson? Uh, only because I've read some stuff on Michael Kitz's website that okay. had Olson on there. But John John no. Olson knows more about annuities, I think, than Kitsis. And Olson and Kitsis work together and have written many articles, as Chris has already alluded to. Um, so I'm going to give shout out uh, to them on a lot of what I'm going to tell you and, and teach you because I got this knowledge from them. And one of the things they pointed out on this one-year rule, which I didn't realize because I was always told, oh, you got one year. One year from when you inherit a non-qualified annuity from a non-spousal beneficiary to annuitize it. Do the action, folks, the verb. Take this lump sum of money, in this person's example, $800,000. Tell the insurance company, keep it and give me a lifetime stream of guaranteed income that I cannot outlive. They point out that the IRC code has never been cleaned up and all these laws keep getting changed. And there's actually two provisions. One provision says you must make the election to take a lifetime stream of income within 60 days of death and begin payments no later than 12 months after death or the five-year rule will apply. Then there's another provision that just says you must begin payments within 12 months of death. They don't know which provision actually applies Mm. to this day. Most, and they concede, most insurance companies go with the latter. And the IRS has not come against anyone, has not created a hubbub over it. So pretty much you're safe if you annuitize within 12 months of inheriting a non-qualified annuity or the five-year rule applies. But technically speaking, you got to make the election within the first 60 days of death. I think that mm. provision is stupid and it should be removed. Yeah, if someone dies, yeah, especially someone you love and care for, this man's mom, you think the first thing running through his head is, oh my God, I got 60 days to make up my mind. So I think it's purposeful that the IRS isn't making a big deal on that provision. But Olson and Kitsis, they're so anal in their knowledge and they're so good at it they say, well, technically speaking, this is what's in there. So anyways, I just found that interesting. I read that article a long, long time ago. Okay, back to what he said he was going to do. Theoretically, there are four things you can do with a non-qualified inherited annuity. Annuitize it within the first year of death of the owner, as I said. If you don't, turn it into a lifetime stream of guaranteed income within 12 months. The five-year rule applies, meaning you have to close the entire annuity within five years. There's no RMDs between year one and four. You just have to close it within year five. There's also a lump sum option you'll you'll read about. That is being created out of thin air. It's essentially the five-year rule, and you just took the money out in one lump sum. Yeah. So that's why I never mention it. But if you Google non, uh, non-qualified yeah, right. annuity options, you'll see people, oh, you have four options. You have the lump sum option. No, you don't. You have the five-year rule, and you can take it right. out in a lump sum at any time over five years. Right. So that's why I don't mention yeah. the lump sum option. Yeah. But you'll also see then the two that I mentioned, annuitization within one year or five-year rule 
as if the lump sum and five-year rule are two separate things. And what is known as a non-qualified stretch. And I didn't mention it because I don't believe in it. Especially post-Secure Act. So what is the non-qualified stretch? Go ahead and read the IRC code. You won't find it in there. You'll find the one-year rule that I just said, or the 60-day rule, as Olson and Kitts has pointed out. And you'll see the five-year rule. You will see no mention of a lump sum. And you will see absolutely no mention of the non-qualified stretch. Because it was a fabrication created by the insurance industry in 2001 when Jackson National got a private letter ruling. In 2001, folks... 22 years ago, when what was just coming into vogue? The stretch IRA. The stretch IRA never was the rule. It was added in the early 2000s. I think it took effect in 2000 and was adopted in 2001. So Jackson National in 2001 applied for a private letter ruling and essentially said, hey, If we have a non-qualified annuity and a non-spouse beneficiary inherits it, can they stretch it out over their lifetime like the owner of someone who inherited, like the beneficiary of an IRA could? Can they apply their single life table and begin taking payments at the end of the first year after death based on their single life table and follow the stretch rules? And the IRS said in a private letter ruling, yes. And then the stretch IRA was born, but it was not born under the IRC code. And it applies only to Jackson National. Every insurance company would have to get their own private letter rulings. Many did, many didn't. And to this day, not all insurance companies offer the stretch because they don't think it's going to be allowed. And I especially, post-secure, do not think the stretch annuity is doable and allowable. It was not created by an act of Congress, folks. A private letter ruling is an opinion by the IRS at that time, 2001. And it applies just to the person or entity asking for the private letter ruling. So in 2001, the opinion of the IRS to Jackson National was, yes, you can do a stretch on a non-qualified annuity. If you are going to try to do a non-qualified annuity stretch today, ask the insurance company, do you have a 2023 private letter ruling post-secure one and post-secure two, which killed the stretch IRA that still shows the IRS's opinion is you can stretch a non-qualified annuity. We're going to allow that. The whole point of killing the stretch was to raise tax revenue. Do you think the IRS is going to allow a stretch non-qualified annuity now? that the stretch IRA is dead and they could get money out in five years as opposed to the rest of your life expectancy, not on your life. 
I would caution this listener who said he is going to look to stretch these payments over his life expectancy with a non-qualified stretch. That is not in the IRC code, never was, never will be. It was a private letter ruling and a PLR cannot, and the IRS makes this perfectly clear, it's not a revenue ruling that you can rely on to make decisions. They caution you what, Chris? Unless you're the person who received it to not rely on it for your own decision-making. Exactly. If you are going to try to do a post-secure, non-qualified stretch, I wouldn't. And if you do, Demand a PLR, and the insurance company will probably tell you, go pound tar, you go get it yourself, because it's like $15,000 to apply for one. I don't know. So, Yeah, the thing is, he'd, he'd, get, he'd get higher annuity payments, he'd get higher monthly payments doing the annuitization option. He would give up control of the money. That's the trade-off. Taking the stretch does allow him at some point to say, oh, I'm done, you know, I'm done with this. I don't want to take these smaller payments. Just give me what's left and you know, deal with the tax consequences at that time. Uh, also, it's still going to be a first-in, first-out thing. So all those payments are going to come out first. The earnings are going to come out first, 100% taxable on the stretch. Whereas annuitized, it's going to come out as a blend of earnings and basis. So there are differences between the two. If what he wants, and if it's gonna, if he's truly gonna stretch it to his life expectancy, if he if he's not worried about taking it out as a lump sum, he's gonna get, I believe, a better income stream by annuitizing, and have a, probably a more manageable tax situation over time. But there are pros and cons to each. If he's considering each end, end the stretch is actually allowed in his case, which I am also skeptical. As, as you are. I hadn't really thought about it since, uh, you know, the secure changes because we don't really talk about stretching non-qual annuities much. But you're absolutely right. The fact that they've killed now, I mean, the kind of the justification for doing a stretch non-qual annuity before was, oh, look, they can do it with IRAs. You should let us do it. Now they've killed it with IRAs. So I don't, I, I also don't see any scenario likely that the IRS will say, oh, no, but, you know, insurance companies, you can do this, no problem. That just seems counter to the situation. So, yes, exactly. I would caution if you're as annu- well. Right. If your annuity is inside an IRA, you can't stretch it. So why should you be allowed to stretch it just because it's not right. inside your IRA? I don't think the non-qual stretch exists anymore. And it never, I I hate, when I started Googling this, when the guy sent me the email, because I thought to myself, they can't still be pushing these, are they? You can still see it. It's all out there. Insurance companies have all this information out there. And I'm appalled. I'm actually appalled. Now, just because it's on the internet doesn't make it real. I'm wondering if insurance companies offer these anymore uh, because of SECURE. I, I personally don't think non-qualified stretch annuities will be allowed by the insurance companies anymore. And if they do allow it, you better ask, do you have a private letter ruling post-SECURE Act that the IRS has blessed your insurance company for doing these? If, you, if they say yes, they have it. Ask for what it is. What's the number? Look it up and make sure it's there because you can just Google the annuity number. Um, in fact, I used to have, I don't have it in front of me, the... Uh, non-qual stretch 
from 2021, uh, 2001 that Jackson National got to, to create theirs. But you look it up and make sure it's there. Um, yeah. I, I just am very hesitant on that. Yeah. Okay, enough of that. Okay, here's a, a question that came in a while ago. Hi, Jim and Chris and everyone else who makes these podcasts happen. Uh, that would be Junior Junior. I have learned so much listening to your shows, and you've inspired me to keep looking for more questions and answer for our finances and to help my mom with hers. I have what I hope is a quick question. <laughs> oh, that makes me laugh. Oh. <laughs> Let's suppose my mother opened an annuity in 1980. Now, he said, let's suppose. So I have no idea if his mom did or didn't. I hope she did, though. Because this is going to allow me to go down a rabbit hole that I have never gone down before on this podcast. Uh, let's. I think we've talked about it before. Have we? Okay. But go ahead. Let's, let's suppose my mother opened an annuity back in 1980. And suppose she funded the contract with $100,000 cash, all after-tax money. Mm -hmm. Now, i got to pause there. Obviously, they're opening a non-qualified annuity. Why can I say that, folks? Well, first of all, he makes it clear, all after-tax money. There is no way his mother could have, in 1980, $100,000 of after-tax money inside an IRA, mostly because IRAs didn't come out until 74. And the contribution amounts were very, very low. So there's no way that this is a... IRA. I feel confident it is not $100,000 of after-tax money inside an IRA. So his mom opened a non-qualified annuity and put $100,000 in in 1980. Mm -hmm. So I'll continue reading. It has now grown over the years. And now let's suppose my mom is at an age where she must take required minimum distributions. If when she originally funded the annuity, she used all after-tax money, my questions are this. Will her RMDs now be taxed at two rates, pre-tax and post-tax, for her annual IRA distribution? Let me pause there. Hmm. There are no RMDs from non-qualified annuities. I'm confused on this because he's talking RMD. So I thought, well, the mom must have an IRA and she bought an annuity inside an IRA. But then she couldn't have $100,000 of after-tax money inside an IRA. I think he's made up a hypothetical that can't likely exist. So, okay. Yeah. Maybe it is hypothetical. If you have an annuity inside an IRA... I'll answer his question. If for some reason your mom bought an annuity inside an IRA, and there's a couple of reasons why you would do that. I wouldn't get too deep into it. But for the most part, it's unless you want income, it's not something I would do. And he's not talking about turning it on into income. He's talking mm -hmm. about taking distributions. Right. If you did buy an annuity for $100,000 inside an IRA, and then it grew to 400000 yes, you now have to take RMDs. And all 400000 will be taxable to you as it comes out as an RMD, because IRAs are always taxable. If you have basis in it, which is another question I'll get to later, I'll talk to you about how that might be handled on another show. Okay, so his first question about RMDs, moot point, there are no RMDs. Second question, will the RMD 
our MDB taxed as first in, first out. So the $100,000 of her, the first $100,000 of her RMDs will not be taxed as ordinary income? That's his second question. He continues, I tried to find laws and regulations on this from the 1980s to determine what her tax liability will be, but I haven't found anything yet. Thanks for all of your help and topics and answers. She signs her real name, but she also puts Georgette from California. Let me go back to her second question because it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Your mom does not have RMDs, so let's just rule that out. But your mom has, and I'm going to use 400000 as the value. Mm-hmm. She doesn't give me what the value is. Your mom in 1980 put $100,000 into an annuity. She never mentions additional dollars going in. So let's just assume no other money went in. Right. It is now worth in 2023, $400,000. Yep. You got $300,000 of gain. Chris has said repeatedly that the um, accounting rule that they use when taking money out of a non-qualified annuity is LIFO. Last dollars in, first dollars out. Everybody knows that or should know that. So the mom would have to go through the first $300,000 of gain and pay income taxes on it. Well, not in this case. You're leading people down the wrong path. No, I'm talking about what the current rules are, not for this particular okay. case, but okay. the current rules, you have to go through the hundred, $300,000 of gain mm-hmm. to get to the, the, the cookie center. That is the $100,000 of basis, which then your mom can take out tax-free. That applies to all annuities entered into after August 13th, 1982. The government went straight to the day the new law took place. Life, excuse me, yeah, LIFO. Last in, first out. The last dollars in are the first dollars out. The last dollars into an annuity are the earnings. LIFO took effect. August 14th, 1982. However, if you had an annuity purchased before August 13th, 1982 or earlier, from August 13th, 1982 or earlier, you said your mom bought it in 1980. FIFO will still apply to that annuity. Now you can bet your sweet boopy you might get a letter audit on this. But if you have an annuity opened from August 13th of 82 or earlier, FIFO, first in, first out, applies. Annuities were always under FIFO. But if you remember in the early 80s, they started taxing Social Security for the first time ever. They extended the, the retirement ages. Ronald Reagan was president then. They did a big tax overhaul in the early 80s. And one of them was, hey, annuities, too good to be true. You could put money in, let it grow, and then take your money out first before we, your uncle, your joint owner of this annuity gets paid. (laughs) 
no, 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 no. And they changed it. But as is typical with the idiots in Washington, they try to be nice. And they often grandfather people in. This is one of the few times they grandfathered right to the day. August 13th, 1982 or earlier, FIFO will apply. Now, a couple of caveats to this. If you sit in there salivating because you had an annuity opened in before August 13th, 1982, and I'm sure there's people out there with them, and you say, wow, I used to put 50000 a year in for 20 years. I can get all that money out first. Nope. Just the money that was in the annuity prior to August 13th, 1982 can come out. Any dollars that went in on August 14th of 82 or after, those dollars cannot be reached until you go through all the earnings inside the annuity. So it's a little bit tricky in the accounting. But if your mom truly does have, this isn't a hypothetical listener, and your mom has a non-qualified annuity that she put a hundred grand in back in 82, she has no RMDs today, and she can get her original hundred thousand out tax-free. And then the earnings can come out at any time because there's no RMDs. She can selectively decide when and if she wants to remove the earnings. Anyways, yep. are we sure we talked about that before? I don't remember that. Doesn't come up much because there's not many people out there with annuities funded prior to August 14th of 1982. So, um, but it's come up before. We've mentioned that before. Oh. And as soon as I saw 1980, it, it was, I thought it was, but then it also sounds like it's a hypothetical being made up too because some of the pieces don't seem to fit together. So, um, I would make sure that this listener really understands the annuity that they're dealing with before trying to make decisions on what the tax status is because it's going to make a big difference whether it's truly non-qual or if it's actually an IRA annuity, which there are RMDs for, uh, and all those kind of moving parts because this whole story changes depending on what that is, you know, whether that's actually true or not. So um, just make sure you understand what you've got going on there before you uh, step on a tax landmine, I guess you, you might say. Right. And since we're kind of on the topic related to annuities and related to what I just said, the exclusion ratio applies all the time. And Chris kind of mentioned that to the person, again, we were talking about earlier, 400000 his mom put in, worth 800000 today. You And Chris said if he annuitized it, the payments would last a lifetime and would likely be greater. I don't know if they would or not. Um to the non-qualified stretch option that he was talking about with it, the payments coming out. It has no idea. It doesn't matter if they're greater or not. If you annuitize an annuity, $400,000 deposit, 400000 of growth, if he takes withdrawals without the verb annuitization, he just withdraws them out of the annuity. Obviously, the annuity was opened after August 14th, 1982. So LIFO, last in, first out applies. He has to go through his 400000 of growth. If he annuitizes it, the insurance company will give him what is known as an exclusion ratio, where they are going to say, hey, when we annuitize, we're sending you essentially some of your own money back, some of the interest and mortality credits 
of other people in your annuity pool. Mortality credits are the assumed payments you're receiving from everyone in your pool who dies before you. Mortality credits and interest are taxable to you. The return of your basis is not. The insurance company will determine the calculation. It's not up to discussion. It's not up to negotiation. All you Vanguardian, VGs, Excel spreadsheet experts, don't write your own spreadsheet trying to figure out an exact exclusion ratio and petition the insurance company to honor yours. They're going to tell you to shove it you know where. They're going to figure it out and they're going to tell you, hey, out of every payment we're sending you, 40%, I'm making this number up, 40% is taxable, 60% is not, or whatever your ratio is. But what happens, Chris, because the insurance company will track all the tax-free money he receives. And you've said this before, once he receives all his money, what happens? Then the exclusion ratio goes away and 100% of the payments become taxable because they've given you all your basis back and now they're just giving you interest and credits, which are fully taxable. Exactly. Except for annuities that are annuitized, not opened, but were annuitized before January 1st, 1987. That's true. Yeah, we don't talk we, about that. We haven't talked no. I don't think we've ever talked about that. Because prior to that mm-hmm. date, your payments would continue in the same exclusion right, ratio. Right, right. And then the IRS and Congress said, no, 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 yeah. no, no. Wait a minute. We're giving them credit for more basis than they really put exactly. in. Exactly. Yeah. So if you have a – now, you would have to be very, very old today. I, these probably don't exist, but it's a rabbit hole I love going down. If you have an annuity that was – annuitized before January 1st of 1987 and you most likely if you're still alive and still receiving payments have received way more than your basis already uh, you do get to benefit from a continued exclusion ratio the other reason I wanted to mention it is we often say because people tell us all the time what if they change this rule what if they change that rule the one we hear all the time is what if they start taxing Roth IRAs in the future I guarantee you they will um, grandfather Roths or whatever prior to whatever date the rule changes. Because these are just examples where they have honored people who abide by the old rules. Now, they don't do that all the time. When they did that big Social Security change in 2015, Chris, they didn't really grandfather people long at all. And you and I beefed about that way back in 2015. Yeah. Uh, we don't need to go down the rabbit hole of what was, was lost because you can't do them anymore. But there were strategies that the Obama administration called loopholes. And I'm not calling him out personally, but they did call it loopholes. And it ticked Chris and I off because they weren't loopholes. We were following the rules that Congress wrote. Congress wrote these rules. And then God forbid you actually followed them. And then they called them a loophole. When they got rid of those quote-unquote loopholes, they didn't grandfather people long at all on some of them. So that kind of upset us. They grandfathered, but not long at all. All right, anyways, enough of that. I think we have to wrap Mm -hmm. up about here. What do you think? Yeah, this has got to be it. So we appreciate everybody sending in questions. We've still got a few more shows in National Annuity Appreciation Month. So if you've got uh, annuity questions in particular, make sure you get those into us. We'll be much lighter on annuities after the month of June on the Q&A show. But 
as you noticed, we kind of have a mixture of stuff. We talked about brokered CDs. We always talks about uh, always talk about social security. So we'll be, have some of that in there. But we'll we'll tend to favor some of the annuity questions for the rest of this month in honor of uh, June National Annuity Awareness Month. So um, the way to send in questions, just to remind everybody, send them directly to Jim. Jim at jimhelps.com is the email address. Make sure in the subject line that you indicate that it's a question for the podcast. Uh, put annuity in there. That'll probably get his best attention um, if uh, you actually have one of those questions. And then uh, sit back and wait. Hopefully that your question gets addressed on the show. Can't, can't do them all, but we do our best to get touch on all the interesting topics that come into us via questions. So... Jim, you have a good day. I'll talk to you later. And everyone else will be back next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 